Welcome to Pick Your Path, a choose-your-own-adventure podcast. This is episode 6, The Secret of Mulligan Cove, written by me, David King. This story will put you on a treasure hunt when a mysterious map falls into your possession, and you'll need to use your puzzle-solving skills to gather clues and avoid danger. This episode was edited and produced by Matt Benson and Andrew Lindy, and narrated by Matt Hawley. Our theme song is by Christopher Wrigley of Bunhouse Jingles at customjingles.net. Our logo art is by Wayne Jensen of waynejensenart.com. If you know how to use the enhanced podcast, skip to chapter one. If not, keep listening for further instructions and the parent's guide for this episode. Hey folks, producer and editor Matt Benson here jumping in on this intro to tell you that this will be the final episode of Pick Your Path's first season. We'll be taking a break from official episodes for a few months, but in that time you'll be seeing a number of bonus episodes to make sure your feed doesn't get too sad and lonely in the winter. I hope you've enjoyed the season so far, and I hope you enjoy its finale, The Secret of Mulligan Cove. This is an enhanced podcast, which means it is broken up into chapters. At the end of each chapter, you'll be presented with a choice. To pick that choice, simply skip to that chapter. In iTunes, the chapters control is under the control heading. The podcast's app on iOS devices, like an iPhone, will allow you to skip to any chapter. Tap on chapters, and then choose a chapter. If you're an Android user, the VLC app allows you to skip to any chapter. In the VLC app, simply tap the options button, the three dots, tap the arrow next to go to chapter, and select a chapter. Most other Android apps don't read chapters in an enhanced podcast file. An audiobook file will also be available for download at benviewnetwork.com audiobook. Avast me hearties, this be the parent's guide for this particular episode of Pick Your Path. Alright, so, unlike the previous episode I wrote, Theme Park Paragon, this one is a little bit more, er, well, violent. Well, there is a very real possibility that you, as a character, could die in this story. There's danger around every corner, and you gotta be careful. There are guns involved, uh, you may get shot, uh, you may fall into holes, you know, things, dangerous things happen. Uh, there's some fighting, um, some fist fighting, things like that, um... Other than that, nothing too serious to worry about, unless the idea of pirate treasure and uh, doubloons and, uh, you know, maybe weird museums that you duck into uh, gives you pause. So, without further ado, uh, on with the story. Chapter 1. That train trip took forever. At least that's what it feels like as you step out onto the platform and breathe in the briny afternoon air. The view for most of the ride had been endless expanses of woodland swooping past, with hardly a break in the trees for the last hour. You stretch your legs and bounce around, trying to get the feeling back in them after all the sitting. Those compartments were cramped. 
You can't complain too much, though. You've come to the seaside town of Mulligan Cove for their annual Tall Ship Festival. As the new event coordinator, you've been hired to make sure everything at the festival goes, well, ship-shape. It sounds daunting, and you don't know the first thing about ships. But this is your first big hire since graduating from college, and you want to make a good impression. Especially since the festival committee is covering all of your traveling expenses. You did take some time to read about the town on the way out. Looking up past the old-fashioned train station, you can see that it matches the idea of a stored New England village to the letter. Many of the buildings look like they date back to the early 1900s, at least, and plenty of them sport some sort of nautical decoration on the outside. There's an abundance of pirate flags flying, no doubt in anticipation for this week's tourists. Kids love pirate stuff, after all. The only thing you don't see right away is some sort of directory. You already have a room set up at the Black Crow Inn, but who knows where that is. With a sigh, you set your suitcase down and get the manila folder tucked under your arm that contains all the festival info. You rifle through its contents, finding the town map by its faux-aged and weathered appearance. You chuckle as you scan it. They really are trying to sell their meager history of smuggling and piracy. Suddenly, you feel someone collide with your shoulder hard. Sending your folder flying and its contents spilling all over the platform, you manage to catch yourself, but the man that bumped into you falls onto his hands and knees. He's dressed in a black coat, which seems weirdly out of place in the warm afternoon, and has a flat cap jammed awkwardly on his head. Cursing, he glares up at you for a moment, and then scrabbles among the papers on the ground. Confused and slightly irritated, you crouch beside him. You alright? You say, trying to be the bigger person. Here, let me, uh... Back off! The man growls, throwing up a hand. You're taken aback by how rude he is. Don't appreciate the way he's just tossing your paperwork around. Other people on the platform are staring, though no one offers to help. After a few seconds, the man grabs something from the ground, shoves it in his coat pocket, and is on his feet again, marching quickly toward the waiting train without a backward glance. Well, excuse you, you call after his retreating back. Feeling flustered, you bend down to pick up your papers and get them back in the folder, and then unfold the town map. Some people, you swear. You blink, confused. The map you're looking at is completely different. It still shows the whole cove, but it's covered with lines and crosses. Strange marks drawn and smudged in faded black and red. What's more, the paper feels thicker, dustier. You fold it again, stunned. You can hardly believe it. This looks and feels like a genuine treasure map. There must have been a mix-up when that man bumped into you, and now you have whatever he dropped. You look up at the train, but you can't see the man anywhere obvious. The horn blares and you see the station hands closing the doors. If you hurry, you might be able to scoop back onto the train and give him his property back. But now you're curious about this map. Is it really what you think it is? And that guy was pretty darn rude to you. So why should you give him back his map? Finders keepers, right? If you try to find the man, skip to chapter 2. If you keep the map for yourself, skip to chapter 4. Chapter 2 You jog back toward the train, managing to slip past the men closing the doors. They glare at you as you quickly explain your situation and take off along the car's corridor before anyone can respond. 
You peer into various compartments as you move along, but see no sign of the man with the coat and hat. Just a few puzzled passengers that stare at you as you stick your head around corners. Again, the train horn blares, and you realize if you stay on too much longer, the train is going to leave with you on it. It will be a big hassle getting back to Mulligan Cove in that case. But that guy can't have just disappeared. You might still be able to find him and give him his map back before the train leaves. If you get back off the train and head into town, skip to chapter 4. If you continue searching for the man, skip to chapter 3. Chapter 3. You move from this car to the next, determined to do the right thing. Luckily, the train hasn't started moving yet, but you know you need to act fast. Just as you set foot in the coach, you hear the unmistakable rumble of the man's voice in a compartment on your left. The door is open, and as you go to it, you realize the man is talking on a cell phone. Yeah, yeah, you hear him say. No, don't worry. Gil's got things covered at the lighthouse in Stephenson Farm. I'm on the way to you right now. Should be there in a matter of... He trails off when he notices you staring into the compartment. His eyes narrow and he scowls. I'll call you back. He mutters into the phone before hanging up. You again. What do you want? You're still not crazy about the guy's attitude, but you shake it off. I think there was a mix-up on the platform. You explain, showing him the map. You drop this. Absolute bewilderment crosses a man's face, and then slowly, strangely, he cracks into a smile. Well, hey, you're right. Nearly blew that one, didn't I? Thanks a bunch. He reaches a handout expectantly for the map. You pause as you start to hand it over. The shift in demeanor is a little off-putting. Something seems weird. That maybe you're judging a bit harshly. If you give the map back to its owner, skip to chapter 16. If you hold back and ask a few pointed questions, skip to chapter 12. Chapter 4 Doesn't take you long to find and check in at the Black Crow Inn, a rustic place prominently located by the little town square. Once you get your key and drop your luggage in your cozy room, you turn your attention back to the unusual acquisition from the train station. Unfolding the map now with more time to study it, you see it depicts Mulligan Cove's landscape, the faded lines still clearly dividing what is land and water, and the river that flows into the cove. The map shows a much smaller town, simple boxes labeled with cursive script as various buildings. You recognize a couple of landmarks on the map that still stand today, like the lighthouse on the northwestern point of the cove and the old fort built on the side of a hill facing the harbor. What you do find more challenging are symbols and dotted lines scrawled around the map. Looking carefully, you see that several X's have been drawn in specific spots, both in red and black. The lighthouse, the fort, and a field to the west of town are all marked with black X's. A dotted line from the fort's X zigzags into the southern woods and reaches a red X along the river, while another connects to the red X between the field and the lighthouse. At the top right corner of the map, just above the detailed compass rows, a strange collection of lines, dashes and dots that look to be some sort of coat, with a tiny skull and crossbones drawn above that. You can feel your hands shake a little as it finally settles. That if those X's and Jelly Roger mark mean what you think they mean, you're holding a no-doubt authentic treasure map. You knew Mulligan Cove had some minor history of pirates, but this is completely unexpected. It's really no wonder the man who bumped into you was so desperate. Had you known, you might have given it back. Or would you? 
Really, why pass up the opportunity to see where this map leads? Even if there's no treasure, it's bound to give you a good adventure. And you'll probably pick up some good knowledge about this town and its history. With your mind made up, you leave your gear in your room, don a coat to hide the map in, and head back outside. Skip to chapter 10. Chapter 5 You carefully edge up to the window, taking a quick peek inside. The red-headed woman you saw on the truck is standing in an empty room, talking on a cell phone. As she paces, she turns toward the window and you quickly duck away. Her conversation carries on. All right, Gunther, I get it, she says, clearly annoyed. We all make mistakes, I know. But you had one job and you blew it. How do you think the boss is going to feel about that? You know she's not that forgiving. A pause comes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, yes, I'm going to keep an eye out. Where have you looked so far? This is a tiny little town. It shouldn't be too hard to find one person with a treasure map. Look, I've already got things covered at the lighthouse. Yeah, yeah, just like we thought. X marks the spot. The number? 1803. It was on a painting. Well, we gather that much, sure. But I don't know which number in that goes into the combination. And see, this is why you should have caught the earlier train. All this sounds fairly cryptic to you, but you listen carefully as it goes on, especially as you start putting two and two together. The woman sighs after a lengthy pause. Fine, I'll meet up with you in a bit. We've made some progress, but until we can crack some of the codes, we're flying blind, and we need that map here, despite what the boss says. We can figure it out on our own. If she had just trusted... Yeah, okay, the Maritime Museum, sure, be there in a few. A beep, followed by footsteps and a door slamming. A minute later, you hear the truck driving away. You realize you've been holding your breath. You let out a sigh of relief. Clearly, this woman is in league with the man from the train. And that's double bad news. You're certainly more justified exploring the house now with the woman gone. You pull open the cellar door and descend into a basement crowded with farm tools and other antique junk. You give the place a thorough search, and eventually spot a trapdoor hatch in the floor. Only obvious because it has a rope handle sticking up. You pull it open, revealing a hole into cold and inky darkness. The upturned part of the door has two planks nailed across it, marking the shape of an X. Your only concern now is to find out what's down there. You acquire both a long length of tied-off rope and a flashlight nearby, and carefully edge your way inside. The climb down is not as bad as you thought, once you trusted your inherent rope climbing skills. The smell of the sea is strong here, and you hear the sound of dripping water echoing somewhere far off. When your shoes hit the ground, you quickly turn on your flashlight, revealing a rough-hewn tunnel disappearing into the distance. You steal your nerves and venture down it. Skip to chapter 18. Chapter 6 Getting to the old fort takes a bit of a hike up a winding road. But soon you're up among the trees and making your way along the old stone battlements. The fort is relatively small, really more of a lookout post or garrison. According to the sign you saw on the way there, it was built by the French before the British colonies really rolled in. 
and it's a protected historical landmark. The view from the battlements is very impressive, letting you see the entire landscape of Mulligan Cove below. You're not alone in enjoying the vista as dozens of tourists bustle around you, snapping pictures, or in the case of the kids, climbing around the restored cannons that still aim out to the sea. With this vantage point to compare, you look at the map and gauge locations. From here, you can see the town directly below, to the northwest lighthouse on the point. You could also make out a swath of overgrown fields through the trees where the third black X is on your map, and a tumble of boulders near the lighthouse road that roughly correspond to the red X. The second red X is trickier to spot, since it's hidden somewhere in the forest. You try to follow the river from town, but its source is hidden somewhere beneath the oak and pine canopy. As you turn to go investigate the fort itself, you spot the familiar and unwelcome bulk of the man from the train moving along the battlements. He hasn't seen you yet, but he's coming toward you and scanning the crowd, and you do not like the look of the scowl on his face. If you duck into the fort interior to hide, skip to chapter 32. If you attempt to blend in with the other tourists, skip to chapter 9. Chapter 7 You trudge through the forest for a little while, keeping an eye on the creek. You have no idea where you are exactly, seeing as there is no trail to follow. You have a rough idea how to get back to town, and your hope is that you'll get far enough on foot to find some sort of sign. You're not lost. No, you certainly can't be lost. You pause for a moment to sit on a fallen log and get your bearings. The ancient map is still folded up in your hand, and you wonder what was so important about it that the man on the train threatened your life for it. You don't want to believe it, but you definitely have an inkling about what the map is for. Besides, it might be able to help you find your way out of the forest. Unfolding the map now with more time to study it, you see it depicts Mulligan Cove's landscape, the faded lines still clearly dividing what is land and water and the river that flows into the cove. The map shows a much smaller town, simple boxes labeled with cursive script as various buildings. You recognize a couple of landmarks on the map that still stand today, like the lighthouse on the northwestern point of the cove and the old fort built on the side of a hill facing the harbor. What you do find more challenging are symbols and dotted lines scrawled around the map. Looking carefully, you see that several X's have been drawn in specific spots, both in red and black. The lighthouse, the fort, and a field to the west of town are all marked with black X's. A dotted line from the fort's X zigzags into the southern woods and reaches a red X along the river, while another connects to the red X between the field and the lighthouse. At the top right corner of the map, just above the detailed compass rose, a strange collection of lines, dashes and dots that look to be some sort of code, with a tiny skull and crossbones drawn above that. You can feel your hands shake a little as it finally settles that if those X's and Jelly Roger Mark mean what you think they mean, you're holding a no-doubt authentic treasure map. It's no wonder the man from the train was so angry to lose it. If you weren't in a fine mess before, you're up to your eyeballs in one now. Still, the chance to discover lost pirate treasure is too good to pass up. Common sense says you should leave well enough alone, but this is a once-in-a-lifetime shot doing something extraordinary. The Tall Ship Festival can wait. You're on a treasure hunt. First, though, you need to figure out how to get out of this forest and back to town. You get up and start following the creek again, this time checking it against a small river on the map. If you keep heading downstream as you have, you'll eventually reach a bend where it flows past the town and into the sea. Skip to chapter 10. Chapter 8 Everything clicks into place. 
literally, as you put all the clues you've picked up together. Three and five added together is eight. You hear a distinct booming click as the locking mechanism gives way. With a trembling hand, you reach out and grasp the edge of the door. You grunt as you pull it open. The room beyond is little more than an alcove, but it's the large sea chest sitting inside that gets all your attention. You kneel beside it, putting your hands on the ancient wood and limed over latch. The lid lifts easily. The green light shines from the depths of the chest, so bright you have to shield your eyes. You feel yourself being pulled forward into the chest, and then... You blink. Baffled, you squint at the bright area around you. You appear to be standing in the control room of some sci-fi spacecraft, and a steampunk one at that. A complicated circular device in front of you is covered with levers, buttons, dials, and knobs. While in the center, a green orb hangs suspended in midair. As you stand there, gaping, a holographic screen flickers into being in front of the sphere. Welcome, Patcher. The text on the screen reads, Congratulations on surviving the trials. I am S-P-E-E-R-E-X. Specialized pan-dimensional engine for education, recreation, and exploration. How can I be of assistance to you? You pick your job off the floor. Um, what? You manage. It is understandable there would be some confusion, Patcher, replies the Spearex. I will hopefully clear some of that up for you. I am a device capable of traveling to parallel universes, and you have been selected, among many other versions of you, to become the next Patcher. Uh... You continue... I have borne witness to many other distinct possibilities based on your choices. You died in many of them. And in another possible universe, this device was merely a container of valued metals and coins of the realm. However, you have succeeded in surviving and problem solving, and have thus become the prime version of yourself. You will exist in a solid state across any universe we travel to. So... Where would you like to go, Patcher? You can barely comprehend what's going on. You sigh, trying to wrap your head around this sudden new concept. Can you take me to a universe where Maestro Shark is real? Certainly, Patcher. We shall proceed. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to Chapter 1. Chapter 9. You try to vanish into the crowd, being as nonchalant as possible. As you weave among them, you're sure you're inadvertently photobombed a number of family pictures and selfies, but it does allow you to get some distance as you move around the battlements. Unfortunately, you also lose sight of the man. You make your way around to the other end of the battlements, and descend the short flight of stairs into the small courtyard, which is also crowded with sightseers. Suddenly you feel a hand on your shoulder and something hard poking you in the back. Keep quiet and move. The voice you recognize growls in your ear. Try anything, you're dead. You don't even have to look to recognize the man, or to know that he's got a gun pointed at you under his coat. You start to walk, him following close behind. He looks to be leading you out of the fort, and you get the feeling he's not going to let you go once you're away from all these people. You have a very slim chance here, but no chance if he takes you away. You spin around, yelling help, as you ram your shoulder into the man's chest, 
You have a moment to enjoy the irony of how you've bumped into him this time when his gun goes off. The bullet's striking true. You go down hard. But not before you see the panic you've just caused and the security guards running to intercept the man. At least you know he won't get away with this. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to Chapter 1. Chapter 10 Mulligan Cove's town square is fairly busy, with a hustle and bustle of activity you're not sure the sleepy port normally has. Lined with storefronts, an ice cream parlor, an antique shop, a seafood restaurant, and the like, a small shaded island of green lies in the middle, where the bronze statue of a navy sailor and an old-fashioned bandstand both sit prominently. The banner hung from the bandstand announces a lighthouse benefit concert to take place during the Tall Ship Festival. Though it's tiny by park standards, several children play in the grass while their parents look on from benches. You consult the map for a moment, and then think about where to go from here. Across the way on the harbor side of the square is a Victorian building marked by a hanging sign as the Mulligan Cove Maritime Museum, the place you were supposed to check in when you arrived. It might be a good idea to check that out and maybe ask a few questions. There's also the road leading out toward the lighthouse, and the other that will take you near the trail to the fort. If you go to the Maritime Museum, skip to Chapter 22. If you take the northern road to the lighthouse, skip to Chapter 13. If you take the southern road toward the hiking trails, skip to Chapter 6. Chapter 11. You're not sure what the man has in his coat, but you don't want to be around to find out. You spin around and quickly dash along the corridor, desperately looking for a conductor. You're barely a few steps out before you hear footsteps pounding behind you. You thought you'd gotten a decent sprinting start, but the man is faster than you thought. Before you can turn around to defend yourself, something hard hits you on the back of the head, and everything goes black. You come to with a conductor shaking your shoulder, looking concerned. As you get your bearings, your head swimming, you realize you're sitting in the compartment from before, and that the train has stopped. Confused, you ask the conductor where you are. Fish Hook Station, he replies. End of the line. Are you alright? Everything starts falling into place as your memory comes back. You pat yourself down and realize that the map is gone. Surprisingly, nothing else feels out of place. How long until the next train back to Mulligan Cove? You ask. The conductor blinks at you. Uh, tomorrow morning. Did you miss your stop? You sigh, rubbing the welt on the back of your head. You wince at the sting of it. Looks like you're going to be late to the festival. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to Chapter 1. Chapter 12. You pull the map back to your chest before the man can take it, your eyes narrowing. Now hold on, you say. What is this anyway? Seems like a pretty unique souvenir. Where did you get it? The man balks and his expression changes. He is clearly having none of this. None of your business, he barks. Just give it here, it's mine. You're not sure where your bravado is coming from, but you keep it up. I don't know, you don't seem like an antique collector. This feels pretty authentic, and I know for a fact, it's a fairly accurate map of the cove. 
The train horn snaps you out of your queries, as does the rumble of wheels underneath you. With a start, you realize you've used up valuable time, and the train is leaving the station with you on it. You're not sure where it will stop next, only that now you're stuck. The man looks livid. Oh, who gives a care, hmm? I'm not gonna ask again, give it to me. He stands up, his bulk taking up a fair amount of the cab. He swipes a hand out for the map, and you backpedal to the doorway. I don't know what you're getting at, chump. The man sneers, reaching for something in his coat. But you're making a huge mistake by not giving me the map. Looks like you're stuck, and that the situation is turning dangerous. You spot an emergency brake pole in the cabin, but you risk stepping past the man to get it. You might also be able to make a run for it. If you die for the brake line, skip to chapter 20. If you go for help, skip to chapter 11. Chapter 13 The northern road winds through town a bit before crossing a bridge over the river. It's an easy walk, and when you clear the last couple of rustic houses, the vista opens up and the paved road becomes hard-packed dirt. You can see the lighthouse towering on the point in the distance. Ocean on one side and woodland on the other. Your walk down the road is relatively peaceful, as the wind coming off the sea carries a scent of brine and the cries of seagulls. Just as you're coming to a fork in the road, one marked by a tumble of large rocks and boulders, you spot a black pickup truck heading your way from the lighthouse. At the rate you're going, it will probably reach the crossroads at the same point you do. The driver might know a thing or two about the area, and could give you some pointers. Especially if it's the lighthouse keeper or some related caretaker. But you also run the risk of revealing yourself in the map in that case. If you try to flag down the truck and ask questions, skip to chapter 17. If you try to get off the road and hide, skip to chapter 23. Chapter 14 Though not desolate, there's something oddly lonely about this area. Presently, you come to another road, this one barely more than a rut of tire tracks. It goes through one of the fields of swaying grass to a weathered farmhouse in the middle. You spot the same pickup truck from earlier parked outside. Checking the map, you venture to guess that the farmhouse might be where the next X on the map is located. It's the only real landmark you've seen for a while, though you imagine the house may have been built after the map was made. Cautiously, you approach the farmhouse, thinking about your next decision. You might simply knock on the door and ask to be let in, which means you'll eventually have to explain that you're looking for a hidden treasure. Maybe staying quiet and getting a sense of the property would be best. If you knock on the door, skip to chapter 26. If you sneak around and spy on the place, skip to chapter 31. Chapter 15 Everything clicks into place, literally, as you put all the clues you've picked up together. 3 times 5 equals 15. You hear a distinct booming click as the locking mechanism gives way. With a trembling hand, you reach out and grasp the edge of the door. You grunt as you pull it open. The room beyond is little more than an alcove, but it's the large sea chest sitting inside that gets all your attention. You kneel beside it, putting your hands on the ancient wood and limed over latch. The lid lifts easily. You stare in awe at a king's ransom of gold and jewels glittering in the beam of your flashlight. This is the kind of plunder every pirate or treasure hunter dreams of. Spanish doubloons, silver pesos, 
necklaces of gold, an emerald nearly as big as your palm, and so much more. You can't help but laugh at the sight. What started out earlier today as a freak accident has led you to the secret of Mulligan Cove. Whatever you decide to do with this discovery is yours to make alone. Odd. You feel a strange chill, a little colder than the damp cavern around you. Something moves out of the corner of your eye, and when you turn to look, you see a ghostly figure with a red beard and dressed in pirate garb staring at you. Your heart freezes in your chest, but then, just as suddenly, the apparition is gone, leaving only a lingering feeling of dread. The End? Chapter 16 After a moment's hesitation, you give the map over to the man. He smiles and nods as he stuffs it into his coat pocket. Thanks, he says. I appreciate it. You saved me a big future headache, I gotta say. What's your name, friend? You tell him, but before the conversation can carry him much further, the train horn blares once more. Hey, you better get going if you're not taking this train, he points out. You couldn't agree more, and you leave the man with a wave and hop back off the train before it rumbles out of the station. Feeling accomplished, you quickly go back to your own things and head to the inn and check in. Though you can't quite shake the feeling that something strange was going on. You ultimately did a good thing helping that stranger, even though he was rude to you. You spend the next week in Mulligan Cove managing the festival. It's fun and educational, and you learn more about tall ships, medical jargon, and American pirates and privateers than you ever thought you could in a weekend. By the end of the trip, you could say with confidence that you did a good job, especially when you're asked to come run the festival again next year. A few days after you return home, you find an envelope with no return address on your table. The envelope contains a check in your name for $5,000, signed by a Miss Benedict, and a note that simply reads, Thanks. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to Chapter 1. Chapter 17 you wait at the crossroads and raise a hand as the truck draws near. It slows to a stop, kicking up dust as it does. The driver's side window rolls down to reveal a red-headed woman in a green coat. She eyes you suspiciously. Uh, hello. You attempt to smile. Sorry to bother you, but I was wondering if you... Your words trail off as the woman cocks an eyebrow and slowly, casually, lifts her arm, revealing a gun. She points it at you with a sneer. Get in. She says simply. You raise your hands ever so slowly. There's nothing but windswept fields and trees for acres around you. And town is a good distance behind. You're alone and don't appear to have many options. You appear to have no choice but to go with her. But you could make a dive for the jumble of boulders at the side of the road. If you attempt to run for cover, skip to chapter 27. If you comply with a woman's demands, skip to chapter 25. Chapter 18 After what feels like ages of travel, the tunnel opens up into a wider natural cavern, complete with stalagmites and stalactites. It's an eerie sight, made even eerier by the large and out-of-place stone door on the opposite side of the cavern from you. Covered in algae and dripping with water, the door looks like it was hauled from the depths of the ocean, with a pair of genuine crossbones mounted in the middle. Move in to take a closer look at this grim portal. On either side of the crossbones are large wooden wheel dials with single-digit numbers carved into them. 
Two similar dials sit next to each other below the bones. You give a couple of the dials an experimental turn, seeing that each runs from 0 to 9. It appears to be a massive combination lock. Now the question is, do you know how to solve it? If you know the solution, skip to that chapter number. Otherwise, keep track of this chapter number so you can come straight back later. Then skip to chapter 6. Chapter 19. Leaving the fort behind, you hike down a little woodland trail that takes you to the edge of the river. You follow it upstream a little ways as it narrows into a creek, keeping an eye out for anything unusual. Eventually, you leave the hiking trail and branch off into the undergrowth, taking care to avoid any poison oak or thorny plants. A few squirrels dart through the brush, and you hear the distant sound of a woodpecker. But you appear to be completely alone out here. The branches overhead become thicker and more entangled, keeping you in a deep shade. You hold the course and stay close to the creek. It doesn't take long for you to see something unexpected through the trees. A Jolly Roger flying from a pole. As you get closer, you see the pole is connected to an impressive treehouse built in the branches of a thick old oak tree. Nearby, the creek widens into a pond, fed by a small waterfall. You can see why someone would build a treehouse here, but it's strange to see one so far off the beaten path. You tense up when you see what you think are shadows moving beyond the windows. Would it be better to let whoever's there know you're coming, or to try to be stealthy and avoid drawing attention? If you call up to the treehouse, skip to chapter 29. If you opt to sneak around instead, skip to chapter 35. Chapter 20. You make a dive for the brake line, launching yourself back into the cabin. The man only had a split second to react, and just as he gets the object clear of his coat, you've pulled the line. The train screeches as the brakes lock in, throwing both you and the man against the wall. Luckily, you braced yourself just enough to hold out, while the man stumbles and ends up falling over as a result. As the inertia lightens, you realize the man is holding a gun. You're not about to stick around to find out if it's loaded. Before the man can get his bearings, you run out of the compartment and down the corridor while several confused and angry passengers stare at you in bewilderment. Now I've really gotten myself into a mess. You think to yourself as you clear the corridor and enter the next car. You need to get off this train before anyone slows you down. Spotting an exit door to your left, you push it open and stumble outside, only to find yourself tumbling down a steep embankment, brush and brambles catching your clothes as you roll into forested underbrush. You land at the edge of a small creek, bruised and disoriented, but unhurt. Looking up the way you came, you can see the train through the trees, several people stepping out onto the tracks. Again, you want to put as much distance between you and the train as possible, so you turn and jog deeper into the woods, keeping close to the creek as a landmark. Skip to Chapter 7. Chapter 21. Reluctantly, you reach into your coat pocket and pass the map to the woman. There, you say. Now will you let me go? The woman glances at the map for a moment, then smiles at you. I'm afraid that's out of the question. But you did save me a lot of trouble. As promised, I won't hurt you. Much. What? You gasp, a second before the woman hits you in the head with the butt of her pistol. 
When you come to, you feel the world swaying beneath you and see millions of stars overhead. Blinking, you shake your head and sit up, finding your wrists and ankles have been tied together with a length of cord. You're sitting in a small rowboat, surrounded on all sides by dark, choppy current. In the distance, you can make out the rotating light of a lighthouse beam. You yell out into the night, unsure if anyone can hear you. Looks like you'll have to sit out until your vessel drifts closer to the shore. Or until someone else finds you. Hopefully that will be soon. It's all you can do to keep from panicking as you sit alone on the sea, knowing that you could potentially float away unnoticed. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to Chapter 1. Chapter 22 You step inside the Maritime Museum. A little bell above the door ringing as you open it, and are greeted by the sight of a huge model clipper ship in a glass case, dominating the middle of the room. The walls are a host to all sorts of nautical bric-a-brac, anchors, harpoons, signal flags, the whole nine yards. An older man with thick glasses and salt and pepper hair looks up from his position behind the front desk. Ah, hello, he greets you. Feel free to take a look around. Admission is free for the duration of the festival. Uh, thanks, you reply. I'm actually here to ask some questions about the festival. I'm the event coordinator. You give him your name. He beams at you and comes around the desk to shake your hand. Glad to meet you. My name's Daryl. I'm the curator here. I'd heard you were coming, but I was expecting you a little bit earlier than this. Was your train late? You shrug. It's a long story. Daryl chuckles. <laughs> Fair enough, so what can I do you for? If you ask Daryl about the map directly, skip to chapter 36. If you ask Daryl about the pirates of Mulligan Cove, skip to chapter 33. Chapter 23 It may be paranoia, but you nevertheless clamber up among the boulders to hide. You find a niche between two large rocks that gives you cover, and still grants you a fair view. As the truck passes by, you catch a quick glimpse of the driver, a woman with red hair. The truck carries on down the road, away from town. Before you can creep back out of your hiding spot, something catches your eye, almost hidden by a lip in the rock. The faded red X, hand-painted onto the stone near you and beneath that, three red dashes followed by a black dot. You think there might be the faintest outline of a black box around the dashes and dot, but it's very hard to tell. Assuming this might be a clue, you check it against your map. Though it shows no road, the bridge on the map is roughly the same place as the bridge you crossed. Using that as a guide, you think you might be where the red X between the lighthouse and the field is. With that in mind, you make a note about the X marked spot and step back onto the rope. You can either head for the lighthouse or you can go down the smaller side road that meanders into abandoned farmland. If you go to the lighthouse, skip to chapter 30. If you take the side road, skip to chapter 14. Chapter 24 There's bound to be a key somewhere. You just need to figure out where. You go back upstairs and find your way to the fort's small courtyard, where a guide map is set up. You keep a wary eye out for your old train friend, though you're sure security chased him off. Using the map, you're able to find the head office. And with the amount of tourists today, you're not surprised how easy it is to simply wait for the office clerk to be called away on something. You duck inside, 
nervously poking around the drawers and cabinets for a set of keys. At first, there's no luck, but only a minute in, and bingo. You find a ring of keys, each marked with a handwritten label. You hastily duck back out, and not a moment too soon as the clerk makes a return. Getting with your luck so far, you make a beeline back to the dungeon door, keys in hand, only to find the man from the train already there, leaning against the door and grinning smugly at you. You gasp and try to scramble back upstairs, but the man is fast and grabs you by the collar, hauling you back down. You try to struggle out of his grip, but he's got a solid hold. All right, pal, he growls in your face. No more messing around. Give me the map. How did you know I was here? You stammer. The man shrugs. Saw you leave earlier. Figured you'd be back sooner or later. Now the map. I ain't gonna ask again. He gives you a shake. Fine, fine. You say, shuddering, as you maneuver a hand into your pocket to get the map. He keeps a hold on you with one hand and takes the map with the other. Now will you let me go? The man tucks the map under one arm. Uh, why not? He says. He suddenly snatches the keys from your hand, and while keeping you pinned against the wall, unlocks the door. He pulls it open and shoves you inside before slamming it shut. You turn and try to force the door, beating it with your fists, but the man has already locked it. You said you'd let me go! You yell. Yeah, I did, replies the man. In there. You can stay there for a while. Adios. With one last chuckle, he walks back upstairs. Just wonderful. Now you're stuck down here until someone happens to check, and the map is gone. Things could have turned out worse, you suppose, but who knows when someone will check on you down here. Best to keep making a lot of noise, and hope that the fort staff are understanding when they find you on the wrong side of the door. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to Chapter 1. Chapter 25. You're pretty sure getting into the truck is going to mean certain death, and you'd much rather take the risk. Tensing, you spring for the rocks, tensionally zigzagging as the adrenaline feels you. But fortunately, you can't move fast enough the moment you reach the boulders. You stumble awkwardly on the uneven ground, and this gives the woman just enough time to draw a beat on you and fire. And even more unfortunately, she's a good shot. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to Chapter 1. Chapter 26 You approach the front door and give it a solid knock. A few moments pass before the door opens just a crack. You see the top half of a woman's head, eyes glaring at you. Yeah, who is it? She asks shortly. You clear your throat. <clears> throat. Hi there, I was just uh, passing through the area and I was wondering if I could use your bathroom. There's an uncomfortable silence as the woman studies you. Hold on a sec, she mutters, shutting the door. You stand there awkwardly. It was a lame excuse you gave, but it's better than playing your hand about the map right away. You can actually hear the woman's voice faintly through the door. Curious, you put your ear to it and pick up snatches of a one-sided conversation. The train looked like again? Yeah, yeah, right outside. Can you believe it? No, okay, I'll get the map. This is on your head, though. Before you can react to the sudden realization, the door flies open, causing you to stumble backward. The woman, the same redhead you saw earlier, has a cell phone in one hand and a revolver in the other, pointing right at you. Thanks. 
she says, and promptly shoots you. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter 1. Chapter 27 Seeing no real chance, you keep your hands raised as the woman opens her door and steps out. Keeping her gun trained on you, she gestures for you to walk and marches behind you as you move around the truck. She opens the passenger door, climbs back across to the driver's seat and has you get in the passenger seat next, the gun's barrel never wavering. Don't try anything stupid, she says flatly as you shut the door. She shifts the truck into gear, then moves her free hand to the wheel. I don't want to have to hurt you, and I won't as long as you cooperate, got it? You nod stiffly. What do you want from me, you venture? The woman says nothing, and you don't risk asking again. She steers the truck down the smaller dirt road that winds around copses of trees and overgrown pastures bordered by ancient wooden fences. Eventually, she turns into an even smaller road and drives up to a weathered farmhouse in the middle of an open field. Okay, she says as she stops the truck, turning to you. Hand over the map. What? You stammer, the gun's barrel hovering over you still. The woman's stare stays cold. Don't play dumb. I know you have it. Give it here. What's to stop you from shooting me if I give you the map? You demand. The woman snorts. I could just shoot you and take it too. I told you. Cooperate and I won't hurt you. There's no way you're just going to take this woman at her word. And you cannot find an easy way out of this. If you continue to comply with the woman and give her the map, skip chapter 21. If you instead try to convince her you have valuable information about the map and thus a reason to keep you alive, Skip to chapter 34. Chapter 28. Better to run the risk of being accused of robbery than getting jumped. This whole scenario, you realize, has danger written all over it, and you don't want to take more chances than you already have. You leave the lighthouse as fast as you can and make the call to the police, telling them you suspect a possible break-in. When they arrive, you calmly tell them as much as you can and cooperate completely. You even tell them about the red-headed woman in the truck you saw leaving the lighthouse earlier. One thing leads to another and you actually help the police get to the bottom of what happened. There definitely was a break-in at the lighthouse. Though nothing was stolen and the owner of the place was away on a trip at the time of the incident, you were ruled as a suspect. But only for a little while before it's determined that the red-headed woman's fingerprints are all over much of the crime scene. She ends up arrested for that and other crimes around Mulligan Cove most of which are disclosed to you. That is one odd thing. The police seem strangely cagey about a lot of information. Don't feel inclined to tell you everything. For as much as you're directly involved, you glean surprisingly little concrete information. This is not such an open and shut case. What's worse, you're forced to hand over the map as evidence. And though you're eventually let go scot-free, you no longer have that thing that started you on this whole quest. And judging by some of the government spooks you see turning up a day or so later during the festival, you realize that this is even bigger than you suspected. And that's fine by you. You keep your head down, manage a tall ship festival, and make a good impression on Mulligan Cove, so much so that you're invited back to coordinate the festival next year. Still, you can't help but wonder, what would have happened if you had kept the map and solved the mystery on your own? Who knows if anyone else will even try to solve the puzzle altogether? This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter 1. Chapter 29 
Trying not to be suspicious, you call up to the inhabitants of the treehouse, letting them know someone's coming through. In response, a pair of faces appear in the window to stare at you. Both are boys that look to be about 10 years old, one wearing a red bandana and cheap toy eye patch. The other wearing a green bandana. Oh, Avast! Who goes there? Cries Red Bandana in his best Long John Silver voice. Are you friend or foe? Friend, I hope. You respond. Permission to come aboard, Captain. Eh, blay that! Yells Green Bandana. Stay where you are, landlubber. We be standing by to repel borders. Plus, adds Red Bandana in a normal voice. My mums wouldn't like us talking to strangers. Who are you? You introduce yourself. I mean no harm. You don't even have to come down from there. I just want to check out the waterfall. The boys look at each other, then duck out of sight. A few seconds pass, and they pop up again. Arr, stand by, says Green Bandana. These waters be treacherous. We'll be right down. A rope ladder unfurls from the bottom of the treehouse, and the two kids take a deliberate path around you. Red Bandana has a wooden baseball bat over one shoulder, while Green Bandana has a plastic sword tucked under a sash at his waist. Well, I'm Jonas, says Red Bandana. Oh, this is Terry. This treehouse is supposed to be a secret spot for us kids. What are you doing here? They say discretion is the better part of valor, but you figure these kids might know about the area, and you need to show you're trustworthy. You decide you'll be honest with them to a degree, and tell them how you're following a map looking for clues, giving them bits and pieces of information of what you know. By the time you tell your story and show them the map to back it up, they're both white-eyed. Holy cow! Says Terry. A real treasure hunt! Hey, can we help you look for it? Jonas nudges Terry with his elbow. Oh, now hold on. Remember they warned us about this in school. It could be a trick. He gives you a questioning look. What are you looking for? You chuckle. Now that's smart, Jonas. I'm looking for an X that marks a spot around here. You point to the map. I think there's a clue that will help me in the fort. Oh yeah, chimes Terry. We know where there's an X. Jonas nods. Yep. We'll show you. Just follow us carefully. We put booby traps all around. You follow the boys' instructions, keeping your distance but shadowing their path. They take you up to where the waterfall splashes into the pond, then point to a nook behind the waterfall. It seems just big enough for a hand to go in, and you notice a faint, faded red X painted just above the hole. The first kids to build this treehouse found this, Terry explains. They found a small box in there, too. What was in it? You ask. A key, Jonas answers. A really old, rusty key. It's kept up in the treehouse now and gets passed to each new generation of kids that come along. We don't know what it's for. You smile knowingly. <laughs> I think I do. You say and tell them about the locked door in the fort's dungeon. Do you think I could borrow it? They both shake their heads. Uh-uh, no way, it's special, says Terry. Unless... He looks at Jonas. What if we used the key? Jonas nods. Yeah, there you go. You can't have the key, but if you let us in on some of the treasure, we'll go with you and use our key to help. You sigh inwardly. Having a couple of kids tagging along is only going to make things more difficult. 
There are some really dangerous people looking for this treasure too, you warn. I don't want you two to get in trouble. Then you'll keep a wither eye open, mighty, says Terry. Besides, this is exactly what Sam McChesterfield would do, right, Jonas? Exactly right, replies Jonas with a grin. Now we'll get the key and then you lead the way. Skip to chapter 42. Chapter 30 It's only a short jaunt up the road to reach the lighthouse. Though the land rises as you go and you spend most of the journey going uphill. The main tower of the lighthouse is a whitewashed spire built of stone, rising a hundred feet into the air. At the foot of the tower, a connected cottage serves as the entrance. The wind whips around you as you step up to the door and knock. There's no reply, but the round window set in the door lets you peer inside. You can't perceive too many details due to the shadows. On a wild hair, you test the handle and find the door is unlocked. Breaking and entering is not normally your style, but you walk inside nonetheless. Uh, hello? You call out in your most, hey I'm coming in and I'm not a burglar, cliche voice. Whatever that is. There's no reply. Move down a small corridor, ignoring the passages and doorways around you that branch to other rooms of the cottage. The room at the bottom of the tower is in absolute disarray. Papers and books are scattered around the floor, kerosene barrels pushed aside and knocked over, several picture frames pulled down from the walls, and a desk lies tipped on its side. The whole place looks like the site of a struggle, and again you call out, your voice echoing through the vast interior of the lighthouse. Still no response. You have a very bad feeling about being here, your eyes darting about the room for any sign of danger. You could do some investigating while you're here, but it's a risky venture. The safer bet would be leaving and calling the police, but that would have you seen as guilty considering you're most likely not allowed in here. If you investigate the ransacked room, skip to chapter 41. If you report to the authorities instead, skip to chapter 28. Chapter 31 You creep quietly around the outside of the property. The farmhouse is not very big, though it is tall and a little imposing in its weathered state. As you come around the back of the house, you notice an old cellar door that doesn't appear to be locked. Testing the handle finds you can lift it easily. The boards groan and the hinges squeak as you do. You pause when you hear a voice from inside the house. A sound seems to be coming from an open window nearby, though you can't make out the words. You hear a female voice having a one-sided conversation. This might be the best time for you to investigate the cellar of the place unnoticed. Then again, you might be able to listen in and find out exactly who lives here. If you go to the cellar, skip to chapter 43. If you eavesdrop on the conversation, skip to chapter 5. Chapter 32 Thinking fast, you duck into the first doorway you can find which leads you into the cool interior of the fort. The short corridor ends in a spiral staircase going down, which you take two steps at a time as you hear the sound of running footsteps echoing behind you. Immediately at the bottom is a well-lit gift shop, which throws you for a loop but doesn't slow you down. You duck behind a display rack of cheap model ships as a man chasing you reaches the stairs, almost crashing into an elderly woman as she approaches the stairs. While she yells at the man, you creep around the purchase counter and crouch there, hidden from the stairwell by a t-shirt rack. 
The cashier, a bored teenager, gives you a sidelong glance, but doesn't lift her chin from her hand. The tirade the elderly woman is throwing at the man from the train is getting her attention. You hiss at the girl. She looks at you. That man is harassing me. Call security. The girl rolls her eyes and shrugs, pressing a button under the counter. Meanwhile, the man tries to shove the old woman aside, but she hits him with her purse and becomes even more shrill. You take the opportunity to crouch run to the nearest exit. Another short corridor, followed by another flight of stairs. This one marked with an arrow sign reading, Dungeon. You don't want to hit any dead ends, but you going back puts you right in the path of your pursuer. You descend. When you reach the end, you're disappointed to find only a locked wooden door blocking the way. The sign mounted to it says this area is off limits to the public, but a barred window lets you peek into a dark stone room lined with cells. Another sign on the wall tells how these cells were mostly used to keep smugglers, thieves, and other criminals for short periods, but that this place once housed a pirate, Sean McCormick, for a number of years. You frown at the door, certain this is where a clue from the map is hidden. There might be a way to get a key from the staff if you do some sleuthing, as long as the man from upstairs has been dealt with, though. You also consider leaving to follow the map to the Red Axe in the woods. Since you're already close by, it may provide the extra clue you need to solve the puzzle. If you go snooping around the fort, skip to chapter 24. If you follow the map toward the Red X in the woods, skip to chapter 19. Chapter 33 It's better you keep the info about the map to yourself for the moment. Well, I understand Mulligan Cove has a little bit of pirate history, you say, considering all the skulls and crossbones I've seen outside. It's true, matey, <laughs> says Daryl. I mean, they're over-exaggerating it a bit, but we did have a few pirates in our town's history. Any particularly famous ones? You ask. Daryl shakes his head. Well, not to the level of Blackbeard or Captain Kidd. Most pirates that operated out of the cove were fairly small time. Especially after the fort was built to guard the harbor. Petty smugglers and gunrunners, really, and an American privateer or two made berth here. But there was McCormick. The name doesn't ring any bells to you. Who was that? Ah, uh, Sean McCormick is a very interesting character, Daryl explains. He was a Scotsman who came to Mulligan Cove in the 1790s. There's a lot of local lore about him since he was a pretty eccentric character. But I don't want to bore you with all the details. If you want to keep asking about McCormick, skip to chapter 39. If you want to change tack and ask about the map, skip to chapter 36. Chapter 34 Fine, you say making up your mind. You can take the map, but you'll be no closer to figuring it out. The woman narrows her eyes. What do you know? You glare right back at her. The X's, the clues, the code. I've got info you need, and I can help you. How do I know you're not lying? The woman asks. Would I lie with a gun pointed at me? You respond. You may be partially bluffing, but you need to keep the woman talking without revealing how much, and also how little, you actually know. Apparently, this has the right effect. The woman unlocks the door to the truck. Alright then. She says coolly, let's test your knowledge. Move. With the gun ever trained on you, the woman marches you around the farmhouse to a set of cellar doors she makes you open. 
you descend into a dusty, cluttered basement full of old farming implements and huge objects covered in sheets. Leading you to a shadowy corner, the woman gestures to a not-so-obvious trapdoor on the floor. You lift it by a rope handle, and it opens into a briny-smelling darkness. You notice the underside of the door has two boards nailed across it, in the shape of an X. The woman uses her free hand to toss one end of a long rope down the hole, the other end tied firmly to a support beam. You go first, she orders, and I'll go next. You... She cuts off as something in her pocket buzzes. She makes a disgusted face and effortlessly pulls a cell phone from her pocket. Yes, Gunther, she grumbles into the phone. Kind of busy dealing with your map, thief. While the gun's aim has not wavered, you can tell the woman is a little distracted. You don't know what awaits you in that hole, but it's now or never for dealing with your captor. If you try to tackle the woman and get her gun, skip to chapter 38. If you try to use Guile to trick the woman, skip to chapter 44. Chapter 35 You attempt to be cautious. You try to avoid things like twigs and huge piles of leaves, but the ground seems covered in them. You think heading for the waterfall might be your best bet, so you shuffle in that direction. And then, quite suddenly, your right leg is jerked out from underneath you, and you find yourself hanging upside down. You flail and yell, but that just makes you swing more. You look up, or uh, down, and see that your ankle is caught in an elaborate tree snare. Avast! Who goes there? cries a young voice from the treehouse. A small boy's head pops up in the window, wearing a red bandana and an eye patch. We be catching an intruder! Arr, that we did! A nearly identical head with a green bandana joins the first. Stand by to repel boarders. Great. Your sneaking around got you caught in the elaborate 90s kid trap. The two kids, both boys around the same age, dressed as pirates, unroll a rope ladder and climb down to stare up at you. They look to be around 10 years old. All right, you scallywag, says Red Bandana. What do you think you're doing snooping around our hideout? Better talk fast, yells Green Bandana, who draws a plastic sword from the sash around his waist. If you lie to the kids about why you're here, skip to chapter 37. If you tell them the truth, skip to chapter 40. Chapter 36 Actually, you say, I wanted to ask you about this. You get the map from your coat pocket and set it on the desk. Was this perhaps stolen from you? Daryl blinks, puzzled. Hmm, no, no, I don't recall seeing this before. He peers at the map, brow scrunched, and then looks up at you. Where did you get this? You sigh. Like I said, it's a long story. Does it look authentic to you? It does, replies Daryl. Hard to say, though. I've never heard anything about this before. Given more time, I could study it better. Are you looking to donate this? You shake your head no. I'm doing some research myself, and I plan on keeping it for now. Do you know anything about pirate treasure, though? No, it's a curator's turn to shake his head. Never heard anything like that. Really, most stories of buried treasure are just rumors and wishful thinking. Not to burst your bubble or anything, Daryl shrugs. Well, that's fine, you reply. I was just curious. Thanks, though. 
Dura pushes the map back toward you, smiling. Sorry I can't give you more hope. I will happily study it further if you want me to, though. At the very least, I can say for certain it's genuinely old. You wave to Daryl and step back outside. You're not convinced there's nothing at the end of this trail, but clearly the museum is a dead end in that respect. You might come back later and try to be more thorough, but for now you'll stick to the map's directions, either toward the fort or to the lighthouse. If you go to the old fort, skip to chapter 6. If you head to the lighthouse, skip to chapter 13. Chapter 37 There's no way you're telling these brats the truth, especially after what they just pulled. I'm just hiking! I'm just hiking, you say. Red Bandana cocks his head to one side, arms folded. Not on a trail? I could ask you kids the same thing, you know, you retort. Let me down. Arr, we not be satisfied with your story, growls Green Bandana. This is our secret hideout, and only kids know about it. Who told you about this place? No one, you reply. I came here on my own. I just wanted to check out the waterfall. Why? Both kids say in unison. Sightseeing? You offer. This doesn't seem to satisfy them. They share a look, and Green Bandana walks over to a nearby tree where the rope is tied. He tugs on it with both hands, causing you to bob up and down sickeningly. Hey, cut that out! You shout before a wave of nausea hits you. The kid ignores you and jerks the rope faster, shaking you vigorously. To your horror, the map slips out of your coat pocket and lands in front of Red Bandana. Hey, Terry! Says Red Bandana in a non-pirate voice. Wow, look at this! You flail uselessly as the other boy comes over. The pair stare at the map with wonder. Wow! Says Terry. It's a treasure map! Look, there's even an X here where we found that key! You better not touch that, it's mine! You shout. Find us keepers! Says Ren Bandana, sticking his tongue out at you. You're a creepy adult and a liar too! Is this a real treasure map? No. You say automatically. Well, I don't believe you. Says Terry, shaking his head. Come on, Jonas, let's go to my house. We can figure this out there. The boys fold the map and turn to leave. Okay, fine. You say quickly. It's a real treasure map, but there are some dangerous people looking for it, and you're going to get into a lot of trouble. Let me down and we can work together. They ignore you and trudge off into the woods. Hey! Hey! You cry after them, the rope making your body sway. You try to think clearly, but the blood rushing to your head isn't helping your frustration at being stuck upside down in the middle of nowhere. You just have to hold out hope that someone will come along and free you soon. Those kids just can't leave you here. Right? This path ends here. To pick another path, return to Chapter 1. Chapter 38 You wait tensely for an opening as she talks on the phone. Yes, she mutters. Yes, it was out on the road. You told me to keep my eyes open and I did. The boss is going to be so... Well, whose fault is that, hmm? She's not going to blame me for it. You're... Ugh. She rolls her eyes. That's the moment. You lunge at her, trying to reach for her gun. 
Caught off guard by your bravado, the woman drops her phone and grabs your wrist as you clamp your hands around hers, trying to push the gun away from you. You struggle, bumping and fighting for control. The woman gives you a good kick that breaks your grip, just enough that you both stumble backward, and you fall right into the open trap door. You never find out how far the drop is, only that it's far enough to be lethal. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter 1. Chapter 39 No, please continue, you tell Daryl. I'm definitely interested. Daryl smiles. Oh good, it really is a fascinating story. In fact, follow me. We have our own little wing of the museum about it. You follow Daryl into another room. This one an obvious pirate exhibit, judging by the Jelly Roger flag hanging on the wall, and the glass cases displaying cutlasses, pistols, and muskets. Daryl draws your attention to a portrait hanging on one wall. A smirking man with a close-tipped red beard and mustache, dressed in a red coat and a plumed tricorn hat. This is McCormick, explains Daryl. Or at least the best visual depiction we have. It was painted not long after his death, and was done by a local farmer who used to drink with him whenever he was in port. As you can see, McCormick was a bit of a flashy individual, and the stories about him back it up. The thing is, McCormick embodied the image of the romantic pirate. The kind that didn't actually exist, you add. Exactly, nods Daryl. He was a man in the wrong time, you might say. The golden age of pirates had ended long before he was born, but he set out to be that sort of buccaneer regardless. All the stories tell that whenever McCormick's ship was in the harbor, he would fly the Jolly Roger from the masthead just to let everyone know who he was. He boasted loudly and often to anyone who would let him about how he was a force to be reckoned with in the West Indies, telling wild stories about pitched sea battles and mountains of plunder. The local constabulary kept an eye on him, but most of the town figured he was just an eccentric and let him talk. After all, he spent his money fast and free and never did any wrongdoing in or around the cove. So you think McCormick was just playing pirate? You ask. That, or at least playing up his deeds at sea, Duro replies. Clearly, he had a ship and crew, and he was getting the money from somewhere. Some records show he took letters of mark and attacked British vessels on America's behalf during the Revolution. But he must have done some genuine pirating as well. There's not a lot of records about that, unfortunately. What we do know is that in 1803, McCormick's luck ran out. The authorities managed to get some incriminating information about him, and his ship was ambushed coming back into the harbor. McCormick managed to escape for a while by abandoning his crew, but he was eventually captured and thrown into the dungeon up at the fort, where he spent the remainder of his days. You shake your head. No pirate ever gets away with it in the end, do they? Daryl chuckles. Not often, no. McCormick's story is not unique, but it was that exaggerated need to be a pirate that stuck with this town. It was like he was trying to prove something. Come to think of it, one thing I hadn't mentioned yet was that McCormick had a young daughter who he loved dearly. Though, we don't know much about her. Perhaps he was trying to impress her. You're not looking around the room. Did any of these things in here belong to McCormick himself? A few, says Daryl. Some of these were apparently custom made by the man himself. McCormick was quite the craftsman. Take this piece over here, for instance. He directs your attention to an elaborate woodcut, showing a ship braving the waves of the open sea, framed by a skull and crossbones above and mermaids on the sides. 
McCormick made this as a gift to his daughter. You try to hide a small start as you look at the frame under the skulls and crossbones. The lines, dashes, and symbols that seem randomly decorative remind you of the code on the map. You think if you compare them, you might be able to get a major clue, but then you run the risk of Daryl knowing about the map. You could try to find a way to distract him, or you could come clean and hope it doesn't compromise you. If you try to find a way to distract Daryl, skip to chapter 45. If you want to reveal the map to Daryl, skip to chapter 46. Chapter 40. You need to show that you're not a weirdo or a creep, and the best way to do that is to be forthright. Especially if you want to get down. You hastily blurt out something about the treasure map and that an ex led you here. The boys exchange a look. Oh, that's legit, says Red Bandana. All trace of his pirate growl gone. Green Bandana looks right at you sternly. You better not be lying. You shake your head. It's all you can do since the blood going to your brain is starting to make you feel a little dizzy. The would-be pirates go to the rope hanging from the tree and undo it carefully, lowering you slowly to the ground. It's still an awkward landing, but you manage to get upright. You comment on the impressive snare. There's more where that came from, says Red Bandana. It's what Sam McChesterfield would do. Who? You ask. Ah, never mind. The boy sighs. I'm Jonas, and this is Terry. This treehouse is supposed to be a secret spot for us kids. What are you doing here? You decide you'll be honest with them to a degree, and then tell them how you're following a map looking for clues, giving them bits and pieces of information of what you know. By the time you tell your story and show them the map to back it up, they're both wide-eyed. Holy cow! Says Terry. A real treasure hunt! Hey... Can we help you look for it? Jonas nudges Terry with his elbow. Oh, now hold on. Remember they warned us about this in school. It could be a trick. He gives you a questioning look. What are you looking for? You chuckle. Now that's smart, Jonas. I'm looking for an X that marks a spot around here. You point to the map. I think there's a clue that will help me in the fort. Oh yeah, chimes Terry. We know where there's an X. Jonas nods. Yep. We'll show you. Just follow us carefully. We put booby traps all around. You follow the boys' instructions, keeping your distance but shadowing their path. They take you up to where the waterfall splashes into the pond, then point to a nook behind the waterfall. It seems just big enough for a hand to go in, and you notice a faint, faded red X painted just above the hole. The first kids to build this treehouse found this. Terry explains. They found a small box in there, too. What was in it? You ask. A key, Jonas answers. A really old, rusty key. It's kept up in the treehouse now and gets passed to each new generation of kids that come along. We don't know what it's for. You smile knowingly. <laughs> I think I do. You say and tell them about the locked door in the fort's dungeon. Do you think I could borrow it? They both shake their heads. Uh-uh, no way, it's special, says Terry. Unless... He looks at Jonas. What if we used the key? Jonas nods. Yeah, there you go. 
You can't have the key, but if you let us in on some of the treasure, we'll go with you and use our key to help. You sigh inwardly. Having a couple of kids tagging along is only going to make things more difficult. There are some really dangerous people looking for this treasure too, you warn. I don't want you two to get in trouble. Then you'll keep a wither eye open, mighty, says Terry. Besides, this is exactly what Sam McChesterfield would do, right, Jonas? Exactly right, replies Jonas with a grin. Now we'll get the key and then you lead the way. Skip to chapter 42. Chapter 41 You throw caution to the wind as you start taking a better look around. Whoever was here may have been looking for the same clue you were. And if this room is the one most defaced, then it might be the one to look through. The map did show an X here. You take a quick trip up the spiraling stairs to the next room, only to find it remotely orderly and neat, giving you a good reason to keep your search to the main room, and avoid possible ambush from up there. You go back to the bottom floor. As you sift through the mess there, it occurs to you that whoever broke in here might have also taken the clue with them, if it was an object of some sort. You flash back to the red-headed woman from earlier. She drove down from here as you came up the road. Maybe she knows. Suddenly you spot it. A wall near the stairs. A pair of antique harpoons have been mounted, crossing each other in the shape of an X. It's a stretch, but definitely a start. There's nothing below but a pair of mounts where a large frame should hang. You start looking at the paintings of portraits scattered around the floor, picking them up and turning them over in your hands. Most are old photographs and personal affects, showing various lighthouse keepers and landscapes from around the cove. It takes a moment for you to find one that matches the rough space on the wall, and it's easily the largest that's been torn down. It's an oil painting of a three-masted ship in the midst of a storm, dramatic bolts of lightning spidering through the clouds. The sails of the ship are torn and tattered, and a part of her deck seems to be on fire. In the background, through the rain, you can see the waves breaking against a rocky shore, and a rendition of the very lighthouse you're standing in casting light out into the tempest. At the bottom of the frame, engraved in a little space, you can finally make out worn characters. Seeking Refuge, 1803. You check the back of the painting for anything else, but it's blank. You scrutinize the painting carefully, trying to commit each little detail to memory, before setting it against the wall with a sigh. You're almost certain this is the clue, but what part of it? You think you can puzzle that out as you keep exploring and following the map. You make your departure from the lonely lighthouse and check the map as you head down the road. The next X is not far, located in the farmland to the south. Might as well look for that while you're nearby. Skip to chapter 14. Chapter 42 With your new friends in tow, you make the long trek back to the fort. The crowds have lightened a bit since earlier. You're not sure if that's going to make this next part harder or easier. The kids explain that like a lot of other local children, they've been to the fort dozens of times, but usually in the company of their families or on school field trips. Oh, they never let us play around, grumbles Jonas. 
All we want to tell this is about how it was built and who was in charge and blah blah blah. I just want to know how many pirate ships the cannon blew up. Or how many pirates were locked in the dungeon. That's Terry, rubbing his hands together excitedly. Guess we're about to find out. Oh, this is so cool! You make a shushing gesture as you retrace your steps to the stairs to the dungeon. You give them your plan. All three of you will go down to test the key on the door. And then they'll stand outside while you look around. Neither of them want to be left out of the best part, but you point out that someone needs to stand guard and make sure the door doesn't close. It's also better for them to run if need be. You genuinely don't want these kids to get in trouble. And begrudgingly, they agree before you reach the door. The rusty key, surprisingly, fits into the old lock on the door. You pull it open and step into the gloomy chamber, lit by a weak rays of light coming from a high, narrow, and barred window on the far wall. Since the dungeon only has four cells, your search is fairly thorough. You check the dusty floors and the dank ceiling stones for any hint or clue. Finally, your gaze falls on an X scratched into the wall of a cell, and just below that, a series of tally marks. Five, to be exact. The letters SM have been crudely etched next to them. A shrill sound echoing through the chamber almost makes you jump out of your skin. You catch your breath when you realize it was just the sound of a cell phone ringtone coming from the entrance. You try to commit what you just saw to memory as you leave, meeting Jonas and Terry at the entrance. Terry is muttering into his phone and he snaps it closed when you arrive. Aw oh man, that was my mom, he says. She wants us back at my house pronto. You didn't tell her where you was, did you? Asked Jonas. Oh, of course not. Terry pockets the phone. I said we were still at the treehouse, but she's going to be mad if she finds out we're here with... <sighs> he trails off as he points at you. So, did you find anything? Jonas asks you. You shake your head. Nothing specific. It was worth a try, but it looks empty. The two boys look disappointed. Oh man. Mumbles Jonas. And now we gotta go too. You better keep your promise, says Terry, or we'll send you to Davy Jones. You tell them it's fine, that you'll keep your end of the bargain if you find the treasure. You're not entirely sure how honest you're being since these two did help. It's better they not be involved though. Once the three of you reach the top of the stairs, Terry and Jonas wave to you and take off at a run, taking the key with them. As for you, free of your impromptu wards, you set your sights on your next map goal. Your next stop, the lighthouse. Skip to chapter 13. Chapter 43. You pull open the cellar door. Its rusty hinges groan in protest. You climb down into the dark and cluttered space, full of old farming implements and mysterious large objects covered in sheets and rope. You start looking around among the items hoping some hint of an X will mark the spot. Coming into this place uninvited is making you nervous. Suddenly you hear a door open somewhere else in the cellar. You duck behind a sheeted object, tensely listening to the sound of footsteps on wooden stairs, then on the cellar floor. You look around for a better place to hide, and notice what looks to be a rope handle attached to a trap door in a shadowy corner. You drop to your hands and knees and crawl toward it. Before you can make it that far, you hear footsteps stop, followed by a loud click. 
Looking over your shoulder, you see the red-headed woman from the truck peering around the sheets at you, a pistol in her hand. She frowns and raises it in your direction. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to Chapter 1. Chapter 44 You wait while the woman grimaces on her phone, and slowly edge back toward the trap door. Keeping an eye on her, you have an idea. She meets you and gestures with a gun to keep going. Yes, she mutters. Yes, it was out on the road. You told me to keep my eyes open and I did. The boss is gonna be so... Well, whose fault is that, hmm? She's not gonna blame me for it. You're... Ugh. You grab the rope and slowly, very slowly, edge down into the dark abyss. The light coming in from above barely seems to penetrate, but it feels cold and damp. You can feel yourself sway gently into a rough stone. You think it might be some sort of natural cavern, but it's hard to tell. Looking up, you can see the woman standing above you, watching your progress, but still somewhat preoccupied by the phone call. After a few more tense feet, you feel your shoes brush against an uneven floor. At that moment, you fling yourself off the rope and roll carefully on the floor, making a big show of gasping. You start yelling in pain, clutching at your ankle. Sure, it seems like a lame gimmick, but it's your only real option. What happened? The woman calls down to you. I fell. Oh. You shout. I think I broke all of my legs. You add a couple of convincing moans and gas of pain for a good measure. You hear an exasperated groan as the woman ducks out of sight. A moment later, she starts climbing down herself. She has to use both hands on the rope, but you're not sure where her gun is. Groaning, you roll over to the end of the rope and begin pulling it, making the woman sway around. She yells an alarm. You keep the energy going, tugging and jerking your end of the rope. The woman tries to shimmy down faster, but loses her grip and falls practically on top of you. You leap into action, tackling the woman before she can get her bearings. She tries to wrestle you off, but you're desperate to keep her from getting her gun. You spot the handle of something jutting from her pocket in the dark, snatch it. It's just a flashlight. The woman snarls and reaches for another pocket. Your reflexes kick in as you swing the flashlight at her, hitting her in the head. She slumps to the floor, knocked out cold. Your heart is still pounding as you check to make sure your assailant is stunned. Then, turn the flashlight on. The beam sweeps around the cavern walls and reveals a rough-hewn tunnel winding away into the shadows. You do a quick search of the woman to get her gun. It looks like the barrel was bent in the fall, rendering it useless. You unload it and kick it down the tunnel to be safe. Then, taking the end of the rope, you tie the woman's hands together and behind her back. As you do, you notice a piece of scrap paper on the floor near her. With an X and the number 1803 written in pen, you pocket it. Satisfied, the woman won't be bothering you for a while. Turn your attention back to the mysterious tunnel. Flashlight in hand, you cautiously follow it, the cool and damp growing as you go. Skip to chapter 18. Chapter 45. You start looking for a way to get Daryl out of the room, thinking of what you can to buy you a few minutes. Say, Daryl, is anyone monitoring the front desk? Ah, no worries about that, he replies. 
The bell will ring if someone comes in, and I can just hop over there to see them. For now, I'm happy to answer any questions you have. That didn't work. You think again. Is there a restroom in here? Daryl nods and points down a hallway. First door on your left, can't miss it. You fake him and slip into the bathroom where you start pacing. After a minute or so, you open the door crack and peer out into the hall. Daryl is standing at the end, his back to you, rocking back and forth on his heels. You shut the door again, frustrated. As you pace again, you hear the quiet tinkling of the front bell. You wait a minute more, then look out again. The coast is clear. You tiptoe back down the hall and into the pirate exhibit. You get the map out and hold it up to woodcut, trying to figure out the best way to put the two sets of symbols together. Suddenly, you feel someone tap you on the shoulder. Turning, your eyes meet those of the suspicious man from the train, and he has a grin on his face that makes your stomach drop. Uh, is all you can manage before the man punches you in the jaw. Everything goes black. You come to with Daryl crouched over you, looking concerned. You're lying on the floor of the exhibit, and both the man and the treasure map are gone. Asking Daryl what happened reveals that the man came in while you were in the bathroom and just started looking around. He managed to brush Daryl off when any questions were posed. And after going into the pirate exhibit for a moment, the man promptly left. Daryl had come in a few minutes later to find you out cold. At least nothing was stolen, he says with a sigh of relief. We do have alarms for something like that. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter 1. Chapter 46 Time to spill the beans, it seems. Daryl, is it possible that McCormick could have hidden treasure here in Mulligan Co? Daryl smirks. Uh, you'd be surprised how often that gets asked. No, I don't believe so. Pirates burying their treasure is just one of those popular myths. But wasn't McCormick a man who based himself around pirate myths, you say? You also smirk as you reveal the map. Daryl studies the map for a moment, then his eyes go wide. Goodness, this looks authentic. Where did you get this? You take a deep breath and explain the convoluted events that put this map in your hands. At the end, you ask, Was this stolen from you? Daryl shakes his head gravely. No, but I've seen that fellow you described skulking around town. He straightens up and looks stoic. The Mulligan Cove Maritime Museum is willing to back you up. What do you need? Surprised at how cooperative Daryl seems, you point to the woodcut. Can I get a rubbing from that? A few minutes later, with Daryl's help, you've managed to get an impression of the woodcut on a piece of thin paper. Laying the map on his desk, Daryl turning the museum sign closed, you put the paper over it, matching the rubbing of the skull and crossbones with the one on the map. As you suspected, the lines come together to spell a message. Happy birthday, Anna. Find the numbers. Use the clues. Put them against the X that marks the spot. And have one last gift from your loving father. Daryl is dumbfounded. I... I never knew. I didn't want to believe it, but this... this makes sense, though. What a discovery. Was McCormick's daughter local? You ask. No, but he talked about her a lot, according to legend, replies Daryl. Apparently, she was back in Scotland. The only record we have is that she died at the age of 14. But this, this is an incredible find. What do you plan to do? I'm going to find those numbers, you respond, glad to have a solid lead on what to look for. Chuckling, Daryl puts a hand on your shoulder. 
I'll make you a deal. If you give the museum access to whatever you find, we'll deal with the legal part of your uh, archaeological mission and get paid for the immediate worth of whatever you get. That seems fair to you. You make the agreement. You leave as a temporary research assistant of the Maritime Museum. Now to get the treasure hunt going proper, you need to start looking for the X's and the numbers that are clues. If you go to the old fort, skip to chapter 6. If you head to the lighthouse, skip to chapter 13. Hello and welcome to Benview on Spielberg. I'm your resident Spielberg apatheticist, Matt Benson. And I'm resident uh, Spielberg fanatic, Justin Kizan. And today we're going to talk about... Duel. The Sugarland Express. Jaws. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. 1941. Raiders of the Lost Ark. E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Twilight Zone. Indiana Jones and the, the Temple of Empire. Indiana of Jones and the Last Fuck Crusade. Jurassic Lost Hearts. World. Saving Private Ryan. AI. Minority. Catch Mission Intelligence. The Terminal. The Indiana Jones. The Adventures of Sinton. Indiana Jones. Close Indiana Jones. Catch Steven Spielberg. Ben on Spielberg. New episodes dropping on the 15th of every month at BenviewNetwork.com. This podcast is a part of the Benview Network. You can find this and other podcasts like it at BenviewNetwork.com. <laughs>